So we're moving through this chapter on the church. It's the longest chapter in our confession. And this evening we see the focus narrowing a little bit further. And we're going to see some of the distinctives of Baptist ecclesiology being brought into sharper view. We've looked at the church understood in its universal sense or Catholic sense in paragraphs 1 to 4. We've considered the gathering of its of, and members of specific churches in paragraphs 5 and 6. Now we get to move into the actual functions and operations of a biblical local church, which to me is the more fascinating side of all of this. This absolutely thrills me to try to understand this and to see this operating. Uh, I've mentioned to the men, uh, there are particular books that have helped understand and can help, and one in particular that I may use, uh, I have been using in my own study, but I may bring, bring it in even more so, is a, a historical study on, on Baptist ecclesiology using the confession of faith and using uh, the church records from ancient churches to show how they put these things into practice. A lot of times we can read it and we're thinking, what does that look like? Well, they, through their records, we can see what they did. And to me, I've read certain sections of this book over and over and over, and it's just it's fascinating. So this is very interesting to me. The way the church should function and what, what we do and how we do it. As with other places, the fact that the Baptist Confession has paragraphs not included in either the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy Declaration of Faith is a reminder that the things that we're going to be looking at are the, the things that made the Baptists differ from those other groups. When you compare these, these confessions that were compiled and, and put forth around the same time period, if you see the differences, what you're seeing is, well, here's where these various groups aligned in their beliefs, and then here's where they differed. And, and again, we have a, a chapter on the church that is longer than, than both of those other confessions because it's the, the Baptist view of ecclesiology which was sort of the, 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 the starting point of the, the differences between them. Remember that being a Baptist is more than the when and the how and the how much and the who of baptism. Being a Baptist begins... First with our doctrine of the church, what a church is. And then out of that we derive our doctrine of water baptism. And then we could say even undergirding those things would be our, our covenant theology. Remember, remember we saw back in paragraph 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. So Christ has been given all of the authority to govern the church. And then in paragraph 5, we begin to unpack how Christ executes that authority. Namely, by calling out of the world unto Himself through the ministry of His Word by His Spirit, those that are given unto Him by His Father, that we may walk before Him in all the ways of obedience which He prescribeth to them in His Word, those thus called He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches. So Christ has been given this authority over the church. The first exercise of it is to call His sheep to Himself and command us to gather into societies. So the question now becomes, how does Christ delegate His authority in the churches? How does the authority get from Christ to 
into the church. And what does it look like for that authority to be exercised in the church? All of these groups, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, we would typically refer to them as Presbyterians. The Savoy Declaration, they would be known as the Congregationalists, which are not very uh, quite as popular anymore. And then the, the, uh, the Baptists. All of these groups that were, were setting forth their differences, they all agreed... Christ is the sole head of the church. And the Pope of Rome is in no way the head of the church. There's, there's complete agreement there. But the difference came, differences came in in how Christ's authority was mediated in particular churches and specifically in church government. Now here I'm going to get a little bit nitpicky about terms. And this is not... There is scholarly nitpicky and then there's me nitpicky. This is just me explaining how I, I think and use terms for, for our purposes. Uh, so if you, if you hear this and you come back and you say, well, you know, the, the Latin term for this means su such and such and such, um, I'm going to say that's probably right. I wasn't meaning that. But uh, for, our, for our thinking, authority, remember, means the right to rule. The word exousia in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It means the right to rule over a domain or a sphere of influence. Government, now we typically put a, an, an article in front of it, the government. But the word government applies to the method, the manner, the mode, or the means by which that authority is administered in a particular place. So there's authority, the right to rule, and then there's government, what does it look like when that rule is exercised? Think of it this way. I'll give you an illustration. Two types of, of earthly government. Constitutional republic versus constitutional monarchy. Now, in a constitutional republic, elected representatives are supposed to govern according to the constitution. Constitutional Republic. In a constitutional monarchy, monarchy, one king, the king is supposed to govern according to the constitution. In both of these systems of government, the authority, the, 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 the right of, of rule resides ultimately in the constitution. And the way that that is administered is either through elected representatives or through a single king but they, they both look up above them to the Constitution to tell them what they do. That's the difference between, at least in my thinking, between authority and then the administration of that in government. Now for the, the Protestant, the Reformed, the, the, we could just say the Orthodox in general, historically, all the way back to the beginning, all of them agreed that the authority in the church is Christ alone. That's always been agreed upon by the Orthodox. If you don't believe that, that's what makes you not Orthodox. Then you're, you're out. So we've all agreed on that. But not all of these groups agreed on the form of government in the church. In other words, not everybody agrees on how Christ's authority is to be administered in a particular church. Now, if we want to put this in a comparative light, we can consider the various views. 
against which the early particular Baptists were distinguishing themselves. So you've got the Westminster or the Presbyterian view. Christ is head of the church. Christ delegates His authority to the elders who administer Christ's authority over a congregation. And the congregation participates through electing elders and then voluntarily submitting to those elders. That's that form of, of church government. Okay, then there's the Savoy or the Congregationalist view. Again, Christ is the head of the church. Christ delegates His authority to the congregation which administers His authority. Then, there's what we would call the, the London Baptist view. Again, Christ is the head of the church. Christ delegates His authority to the congregation and to the elders respectively. The congregation has primary authority which is executed by means of the elders. And, and we'll, we'll be unpacking this in the weeks to come. The elders also have authority in their specific office and function as prescribed by Scripture. The congregation consents to be governed by the elders as the elders execute the authority of the church and fulfill the duties given to them in that office. In other words, the, the Baptist view was not elder-led, and it wasn't strict congregationalism, it was elder-led congregationalism. And, and the congregation and the elders worked together in, in fulfilling various functions. And that's what we're going to see in paragraph 7 to 13, how this played out in, or how this was confessed. So we begin with paragraph 7. This is the foundation of, of all of that, the matter of autonomous local churches. The primary point being made here is that each individual church properly constituted under the authority of Christ and His Word has everything that it needs to fulfill all that Christ has commanded. Every individual local church properly constituted under Christ with His Word has everything that it needs to do all that Christ has commanded the church to do. Now, for that statement to hold water, we have to assume that we're talking about churches which are properly constituted and scripturally equipped. So those are the two main headings that I'm going to use to open up this paragraph. Properly constituted and scripturally equipped. And then we'll go to the scripture references to prove this. So first, properly constituted churches. Reading paragraph 7. To each of these churches thus gathered. First we see that the statement being made here is dealing with specific churches. To each of these churches thus gathered. That is to each as standing alone, each church by itself considered completely separate from any other church, from any association with any churches, all by itself to each church. But again, this doesn't refer to every group of people who call themselves a church. There are a lot of people who get together in a room and open up a Bible and call themselves a church, but they're not actually a church. 
Nor does it refer to all the various people who may be associated with a church in some way. Historically, if you had parish churches and if the, 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 the sword of the government was used to inflict or to enforce church attendance, everybody who lived in a particular area were all members of the parish church. I would argue that's not a properly constituted church. It's not everybody who just happens to be associated with the church. It's not even people who have their name on a membership roll or who are baptized by such and such a pastor somewhere. It says to each of these churches, thus gathered. That means gathered in this way, which points us back to everything we've seen before. Now this is really important. As we begin to think about how a church functions, and we say things like Christ has given authority to the congregation, and Christ has given authority to elders, those are not just absolute statements that apply to anybody who calls themselves a congregation or anybody who calls himself an elder. That has to be defined specifically. What have we already determined about the nature of a true church? In paragraph 1, we see that there's the expectation of the invisible work of the Spirit of grace in the members. Paragraph 2, those, those members profess the faith of the gospel. They profess obedience they don't have any beliefs or practices which destroy that profession. We would call them visible saints. In paragraph 5, they, are, they have been called by Christ and His Spirit through the preaching of the Word. They've gathered according to the commandment of Christ. In paragraph 6, they visibly manifest and evidence their profession and walk, which assumes they have been in some way observed and examined and, and watched. They willingly consent to walk together. They're given up to the Lord. They're given up to one another. When we read to each of these churches thus gathered, we're saying to churches gathered according to these criteria, gathered in this way, this kind of church. Now, this does not mean that any other type of church would be automatically considered no true church or, or, or by default a synagogue of Satan. Remember, what we, the confession is doing, what we're doing is affirming what we believe. But we also affirm that there might be others who are true believers, who come to the Scriptures, who wrestle with the Scriptures. They, they come to a different assessment. They come to different determinations about what the Scriptures teach. We don't look at them and say, because you differ, you're a false church. What we're saying is, what we believe is, this is a true church. Now in the next paragraph, we'll see paragraph 8, a particular church gathered and completely organized. That was one of the ways that the Baptists would say, there are churches that are just not by our definition completely organized. But they're still churches. They've just got things amiss here or there. So when we say this, we're not saying every other church that doesn't agree exactly like what, what we what, or agree with what we say is a false church, no true church, they're apostate, etc., etc. Uh, that's not true. Uh, the Baptists, as we've said before, and you can read in, in the additional writings that come along with the confession, they were very clear, very adamant about, um, we typically hear the phrase, extending an olive branch or, or extending the right hand of fellowship. The Baptists were more like groping for an olive branch or a right hand of fellowship. 
They, they, were, they were writing and they were saying, we agree with, with almost everything. And we want everybody to know that we are, we're, we're not the Anabaptists, we're not the Socinians, we're not these various groups. We are orthodox in our beliefs. We just disagree on these, these few minor things. They're not necessarily minor, but we disagree on these few things. And we want you to know that we accept you if you will accept us. That's, that's the way it's put together. Um, again, not extending an olive branch, but, but trying to grab somebody else's olive branch. Um, it was the other groups that were usually not, historically, not very quick to extend that olive branch. Um, and, and my personal opinion is that, that has, um, this has continued to our very day where Baptists are almost too nice about some things. We're afraid to say, well, this is what we believe about baptism, and if you do it a different way, we believe you're wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. If you believe your way is right, then you have to believe a different way is wrong. The thing is, the, the other, the other uh, sides of this are not slow at all to say, you're wrong. You're not Reformed. You're not biblical. They, they, don't, they don't mind to throw that out. Historically, even persecuting Baptists. So, And I'm not saying we ought to do that, but there's nothing wrong with saying, here's what we confess, what we believe. And in believing that, we are saying other views are wrong. Just like you say our view is wrong. And so therefore we can agree to disagree on this thing and still have fellowship with one another in certain things. So don't, don't hear me saying a church gathered this way is the biblical church and everything else is apostate synagogue of Satan. That's not true, even though we, we do disagree. Then there's a third criteria which has to be accounted for. It says to each of these churches thus gathered. Thus gathered. The assertion in this paragraph assumes a church gathered. Now that could mean, one, officially, formally united together, constituted with a membership, more of an abstract idea, uh, we have a church. Or it could mean actually physically in the, the same place together. Um, and, and there are ways in which both or either of those could be applied depending on the circumstances, at the very least, what we're confessing is that this does not apply to just members of churches individually by themselves. Nor does it apply to the elders only, apart from the members. Or the members only, apart from the elders. It is the church gathered to each of these churches, thus gathered. And all of this might seem like a fuss about nothing, but it's very important to the historic Baptist view on ecclesiology, which we believe, as I hope to show, is just the biblical view on the doctrine of the church. When considering the authority that resides in the local church, we must first define a true local church. The reason is that apart from the proper constitution of the church, the exercise of authority is on rocky ground at best. So we're talking about properly constituted churches. Local churches whose membership consists of those who make a credible and observable profession of faith. Properly constituted churches. Second main heading, scripturally equipped churches. Next we see that the authority of Christ is only to be recognized as given to those churches which are scripturally equipped. And by that I mean these churches trace their actions in all matters back to the Scriptures. 
In other words, we don't say we have authority outside of or apart from or distinct from anything other than what is found in this book. Scripturally equipped. And this is true because it's only in the Scriptures that we find the mind of Christ. The confession says to each of these churches, thus gathered, according to His mind declared in His Word. Now this, I, I, I struggled to read this. I believe that that statement is the preface for everything that follows. And when we get to the, the end of it with the statement of commands and rules, I believe this is the, the proper way to read it. That according to His mind declared in His Word gets us prepared for everything that comes next. So if we want to know what the head of the church has ordained for the church, what he desires for the church, what he expects of the church, we don't need to look anywhere beyond his word. In his word, we have his mind. We have the mind of Christ for his church in his word. And to have his mind it is to have his will. If we have his mind and we have his will and we're doing what he says, you can't go wrong there. It's when we depart from his word that we go wrong. So according to his mind, which is revealed in his word, or we would say according to what the Bible says, we continue reading in the confession, according to his mind declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So now let's break that down. First, according to Scripture, Christ hath given all that power and authority. Power is the ability or the capability to act. Authority, again, is the right to rule. So authority is the position of rule. Power is the ability to do all, of that, all that that position of authority requires. So Christ has given His power and His authority to His churches. Where did Christ get His authority? He, gave, he got it from His Father, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then Christ delegates that authority, in some sense, to His churches. He hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful. We would say which is at all necessary for anything. Power and authority needful for doing the things that Christ has commanded us to do in His church. This is, does not mean that the church has all power and authority in other realms of the world. The church does not have the power and authority to tell you or, or uh, rule over what you do in your home. That's your sphere. Now, the church can instruct from the Scriptures. That's, 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 the, that's where the, the extent of the, uh, the rule, the authority, stops. The church does not have power and authority over what Joe Biden or Roy Cooper or Volodymyr Zelensky do in their positions. We can proclaim. We can preach. But we don't have authority to step in and say, excuse me, Mr. Biden, if you'll step out of the way, I'm an elder in a Reformed Baptist church in Taylorsville, North Carolina, and I'll, I'll handle things from here. We don't have that authority. It's talking about all the power and authority which is anyway needful for us to do the job that's been given to the church. 
the, the specific functions of the church. And what he's commanded the church to do, I, I find this pretty interesting myself, is, is summarized in this way. Which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. Now that sounds like a, 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 a very limited sphere. He's given the church everything it needs in His Word, all power and authority, which is in any way needful to do anything that He's called us to do, specifically carrying on order in worship and discipline. Jesus Christ has given the church all power and authority which is in any way needful for worship. Now when it comes to worship, we know there has to be a proper object of worship, the one true God. There is a mode in which this object, this object of our worship, God has revealed Himself, that is, in His Word. There is a right manner of worship. We're supposed all things are to be done decently and in order. Worship comes with um, criteria that have to be met, a, a way in which things are to be done. We, we don't just get to define worship however we want to or, or call anything worship. Worship is something that the church is called to do. We are called to gather into the presence of God and perform that worship which He requires. And, and in thinking of this, this is where it's really helpful to, to sort of think in terms of Israel under the Old Covenant. Other nations were not allowed to just stroll up into Jerusalem and start worshiping. It was that nation who was given the authority and the power and, and, and specific offices in that nation who led the worship and, and conducted it and ordered it. It was, it was set in a certain way. Everything that we need to do worship is revealed in God's Word. All power and authority for conducting that worship has been given to the church. So the biblically gathered church has the capability and the right to come into the presence of God and worship Him in an acceptable manner. He's given that to the church. And then there's the power and authority that's been given that is in any way needful for their carrying on discipline. The church has the capability and the right to conduct discipline. Now, usually when we think of discipline, we just think of excommunication. The old, I think I've told you, the old word was dismemberment uh, because you're a member of a church, so you get removed from the church, so you've been dismembered. Um, so you read in, in church books, so and so, Mr. So-and-so was dismembered at the church meeting. Um, church discipline is, is far bigger than that. Just like worship is more than just singing songs, um, conducting worship is more than just who gets to pick the hymn numbers. Discipline is far more than just excommunication. New Testament discipline encompasses what I would call admissive discipline, welcoming members into the church. Formative discipline, which is training up members in the faith. Corrective discipline, which is reproving members who are in sin. And expulsive discipline, removing members who are impenitent, who remain in their sin. So the church has the power and authority to welcome members, train members, correct members, and remove members. Christ has given the church the authority to do that all by itself. We don't have to call anybody. We don't have to verify anything with anybody else. The church by itself has that authority. 
Now, it might seem interesting to summarize the function of the church and the, the realm in which the church is to operate in these terms of worship and discipline. But if you consider all that's contained under these headings, it really does succinctly state all that the church does. Again, looking back at the nation of Israel as a foreshadowing or a type of the church and the various laws that were given to her in addition to the moral law, they could all be grouped under those same two categories, worship and discipline, drawing near to God and who gets to draw near and by what means do they draw near and who shouldn't draw near. And when we do draw near, what do we do? Worship and discipline. As a matter of fact, if we take the fall into consideration, all of redemptive history, whether it's in the type or in the anti-type, is taken up with the notion with bringing men back to God and what they'll do when they get there. Who's in, who's out, and what they do who are in. Worship and discipline. And it says that this worship and discipline has been instituted by Christ which He, that is Christ, hath instituted for them to observe. He has commanded His church in these two categories, worship and discipline. Now somebody say, might say, well, well, what about evangelism? What about missions? Well, we could put that under one of those two categories. Perhaps um, admissive discipline, wielding the keys of the kingdom and, and opening the, the doors of the church through the proclamation of the gospel. That would, be, that would fall under one of those two categories. This summarizes everything that the church does, worship and discipline. And Christ has equipped every church with everything that it needs to accomplish the task given to the church. Everything. Not only do we have as we wield the Word of Christ, the mind of Christ, and the power and authority of Christ to carry out proper worship and church discipline, but we also have in His Word, referencing the confession again, the commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. In other words, a church properly constituted with the Word of God has everything described in it that we need to do and how to do it. He's given us the commands, and He's given us the instructions. Here's what to do, here's how to do it. Everything in His Word. So to summarize, each individual church, properly constituted under the authority of Christ and His Word, has everything it needs to fulfill all that Christ has commanded. So then the question is, do the Scriptures teach this? I believe they do. Let's look first at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, the reference is to verses 17 and 18. We know this is the, the, maybe the first most popular text in the New Testament on church discipline. At least chronologically, it's the first. Verses 17 and 18, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. First, 
We have to remember that Matthew chapter 18 comes after Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, we read, or Christ said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or bound, yeah, bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? Then we come to Matthew chapter 18, and we see the exact same language of binding and loosing. In, in chapter 16, the binding and loosing was, the, was how it was expressed that the keys of the kingdom would be used. Binding and loosing. Shutting the door, opening the door. Keys of the kingdom, binding, loosing. We get to chapter 18, we see the language of binding and loosing, but we don't see the, the, the language of the keys of the kingdom. So the idea here is that we're still talking about the keys of the kingdom. We're talking about the same thing. It just doesn't mention the keys. But he's talking here about how those keys are going to be used. In this passage, the use of the keys is tethered by the Lord Jesus Himself to church discipline. Binding and loosing language is brought in to declare the heavenly realities associated with excommunication from the church. Notice the language. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, truly I say to you. And when you see Christ do that, what, what he's saying is, I'm going to take what I just said and I'm going to emphasize it. I'm going to make it extra clear. If there was any uh, misunderstanding about what was just stated, I'm going to say it in an even more pointed way. So when you do this, when you let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, Christ says, what I'm saying is when you do that, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you bind or whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, when you treat Him that way, it carries with it the verdict of heaven. So then we can ask two questions. Who has the authority to use these keys? And whose authority is it? Who has the authority to wield these keys? If He refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It is when the offending party refuses to listen to the church that he is to be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. It's when he refuses to listen to the church that he receives that heavenly verdict, outcast. Not the first brother. He refuses to listen to the, the first brother. That's, that's not a, a heavenly determination. Not even when that first brother takes one or two others with him. He doesn't listen to them. That doesn't receive a heavenly determination. But when he refuses to listen to the church, all of a sudden, heaven is involved in what's happening. In refusing to listen to the church, this offending party has in no uncertain terms refused to listen to God. Now, this throws up a bunch of questions with regard to church discipline. 
Does this imply that every single church member has to go separately to this individual, like in a line or start up a rotation, a schedule? When are you going? Well, I'm going at three. Well, I guess I'll meet him at four or her at four. Does this imply that every member must all go at once to, to speak to the brothers? Does this allow for a congregation to send an elder to be its to, to represent its unified voice in a particular situation? Well, all those questions have to be answered in the light of nature and Christian prudence. The, the, the main point here is that the specific assembly of the saints is considered by Jesus Christ to be the final line in these matters. The text does not say, tell it to God and let Him handle it. The text does not say, tell it to the elders and let them deal with it. The text does not say, tell it to the session, tell it to the synod, tell it to the presbytery, tell it to the parish priest, tell it to the ladies' chat group, tell it to the men's chat group. It doesn't say that. It says, tell it to the church. When the church speaks and the offender refuses to listen to the church, that's when he said, I won't listen even to God Himself. It says, tell it to the church. In hearing and refusing the admonition of the church, the sinner in this situation has heard and rejected the voice of Christ on earth. And the determination of the church in this case is the determination of Christ on earth. And this is true because these local churches, or a local church properly constituted and scripturally equipped, is the body of Christ. And when we have the Scriptures and we use the Scriptures, we have the mind of Christ. And if we deny that authority to the church, what we're saying is that Christ has not sufficiently gifted His body. Christ's Word is not sufficient to reveal His mind and to instruct His church. And Christ's Spirit is not a sufficient guide into the truth for the church. To all of us, we would say, may it never be. The Scriptures are sufficient for us to do everything that God has called us to do and that authority has been given to the church. The next reference is 1 Corinthians 5. Turn there with me. Possibly the second most popular church discipline passage. The specific reference is verses 4 and 5. I'll begin reading at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Here's the reference. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Several things about this passage. Number one, Paul commands excommunication to be an act of the gathered assembly. He says, when you are assembled. I'll leave that there. Number two, 
The assembly is a gathering or is to be a gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is not a random collection of people. This is not a meeting by happenstance. This is a purposed and intentional meeting, a coming together. And that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, has been explained as, quote, by His authority, representing His person and will. I come in His name, with His authority, to declare His message, His word, His will. That's what it means to gather in His name. Number three, Paul's Spirit will be present in such a gathering. This is a promise of delegation of apostolic authority. Now we have to think about history here. At this early stage in church history, authority was still residing in some sense in the still then living apostles. But just as with the book of Acts, you begin to see this transition take place where the authority moves from the apostles down into the, the elders and the churches themselves. The authority is handed to gathered churches. What Paul is saying is, I don't have to be there for you to exercise legitimate authority. If you're all gathered together, then it is as if I'm already there among you and I'm telling you what to do from afar and entrusting you with the authority to act, even though I'm not personally there. He's saying, I don't have to be there physically. You gather and do it. Number four, this gathering will be with the power of the Lord Jesus. When a true apostolic church gathers in the name of Christ, and by apostolic I don't mean it in the charismatic sense, I mean the, the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Scripture, when a true apostolic church gathers in the name of Christ, that gathered church wields the power of the Lord Jesus. The assembly has the right to act in such a way that the action is to be considered the act of Jesus Christ Himself. Paul simply referring back to Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. That was Christ who said that. I believe it was Charles Hodge who said, Whatever is done in such assembly, such an assembly is a work of Christ. This text shows by a specific example what Christ said in Matthew's Gospel. Namely, that the gathered church has been given the authority of Christ. The apostle doesn't say, Don't do anything, wait till I get there. The apostle doesn't say, Well, have the elders get together and give this man the boot. Mark his name off the list. He says, When you are assembled... When you as a congregation gather together in the name of Jesus Christ with full apostolic authority, when you do that, you wield the power of Jesus Christ Himself and therefore you have the legitimate God-given right to hand this man over to Satan. Now, this is pretty fascinating. Think about what we know biblically speaking of the concept of being handed over to Satan. It was God who handed Job over to Satan. It was Jesus who handed Peter over to Satan. It was the Apostle Paul who handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. And here he tells the church, when you're gathered, you hand the man over to Satan. You see the, the, the line of authority. God, Christ, the Apostles, the church. And this, this ability to effectively deliver a man over that he might, in, in the language of, of Christ, be sifted like wheat, so that it might be proven what he's really made of. Very serious. And then the confession points us to verse 13, which 
seals this up. Verse 13, Paul says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He quotes from the old law, the old covenant law, and applies it to the act of church discipline. Now, is Paul saying that God doesn't really have any judgment to make in church matters? I'll, God judges those outside. He doesn't really have much to say about what goes on in the church. Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying God will handle those outside the church in other ways. For those inside the church, God will handle them in this way. God handles sin. He does it in, in this situation through the authority given to the gathered local church. And then turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the final reference which... This has been commonly understood to be sort of the follow-up to what happened in 1 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That, that language, such a one, is pointing back to the man of 1 Corinthians 5. When he says, this punishment by the majority, that was their delivering him over to Satan. They had, they had obeyed the apostle in excommunication. Paul says that their discipline of him is enough. They had acted. They had delivered the man over to Satan. Apparently, the man had repented. It had worked. And so Paul says, he's, he's returning a repentant man. Receive the man. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him so that he's not overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Now, just imagine this man. He's, he's, been, he's had his father's wife excommunicated from the church. Pagans don't even do this. Now he's come back and Paul's saying, the man's going to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Welcome him. Bring him back in. Reaffirm your love for him. It seems by the fact that Paul had to instruct them in this matter that he was being more lenient than the church would have been. They would have potentially kept him dismembered. And it's been said by others that this is sadly a true picture of many churches. Soft or even arrogant when there's lawlessness and harsh and unforgiving to the penitent. We, we can't be that way. We can't be that way. What's the takeaway from this text? Well, we might wonder, once a judgment has been made, the church has, has excommunicated someone, and we know that that is the, the very determination of heaven. Well, uh, who has the authority to, to determine whether the person can come back in, whether they are truly penitent? The answer is the church. The church binds and looses. The church, the church restricts and welcomes. Again, Paul doesn't say, wait till I get there and examine the man myself. I need to make sure this is real. Paul wasn't there. He hadn't been there yet. Apparently, he had gotten another letter and heard of this man's penitence. Just as his sin was known outside the church, now his repentance is made known outside the church. He's known the, the uh, reputation is... The man has changed. Paul's gotten a word and he says to the church, now you get together and you do what you have the authority to do. You had the right to remove him. You have the right to bring him back in. 
The church has the Scriptures by which they can evaluate a person's sin. The church has the Scriptures by which they are guided through the process of discipline. The church has the Scriptures by which they can evaluate true repentance. We say that in 2 Corinthians 7. Or is it 2 or 1 Corinthians 7? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 7. We can evaluate true repentance. The church, that is people have the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth, to give us wisdom and insight, to give us discernment and love. In other words, each individual church, properly constituted and under the authority of Christ and His Word, has everything it needs to fulfill all that Christ has commanded and the legitimate authority to act with the mind of Christ in ecclesiastical matters. Where is the the seat of government, or where is the the seat of authority on earth? It's in the congregation. It's in the gathered assembly of the saints. Now hopefully you can see why all this is important, and especially uh, the earlier paragraphs leading up to this. The Bible never hints at a two-tiered church membership. We've got some members who can do this, and some members who, they're not ready to do this yet. They're just over here as, as... uh, second string members or members in the bullpen, etc. A church member is a church member and as a church member bears all the responsibilities and liabilities of membership. Now pragmatism is never an argument in itself, but we can imagine how dangerous it would be if a group of people professed to act with the mind of Christ with the authority of Christ and the power of Christ as a congregation, knowing that they define congregation as an assembly of a, a mixture of true saints and known unbelievers. That would be dangerous. Those with the Spirit and those completely devoid of the Spirit. Those who love Christ and those who hate Christ. Let's all get together. Let's put our minds together. Let's see if we can come to a conclusion. Let the majority have the day. And when we get done, we'll conclude, no matter what happens, that that was Christ's decision on the matter. That is dangerous. Now, other options would be give all of the authority to the elders. Or... Create a two-tiered membership. Or you have members, but they're not really ready for disciplinary things yet. So just have them over here until they are prepared for that. Neither of those are found in Scripture. If we are to act with the mind, power, and authority of Christ as a gathered church, then we must, to the best of our ability, with the Scriptures in our hand and with the help of the Holy Spirit, work together to welcome members, to train members, to correct members, and to remove members if necessary. That's what the church does. That's what we have the authority to do. And all of that is to an end. It's so that we can function as the body of Christ on the earth. And we do all of this with love and with patience because that's how our Lord has treated us. Much love, much patience. Let's not be found like the church in Corinth that had to be say, I'm begging you. Reaffirm your love for the man. We ought to be quick. We we ought to want to reaffirm our love for repentant sinners. Biblical in evaluation, serious about sin, but quick to affirm love. 
Let's stand and sing together and we'll be done.